From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. All of the cooking that we do in these very ambitious contemporary restaurants is somehow based on home cooking. Hi, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. And you're tuning in for day three of our first ever baking week. That's right. This week, we're bringing four all-new episodes to you, featuring authors behind some of our favorite classic baking books and behind some awesome new ones, too. Earlier this week, we talked with Kristen McGlory of Food 52 and with iconic baking author Rose Levy Berenbaum. And today, we're back in our studio with a guest all the way from Sweden, Magnus Nilsson. He's joining us to talk about his third cookbook, this one all about Nordic baking. You might recognize Magnus as one of the stars on the third season of PBS's Mind of a Chef, or maybe you saw him as one of the first six chefs featured on Netflix's popular A Chef's Table. But by day, Magnus is running his two Michelin star restaurant, Favikin. So as Nordic cuisine has drawn more attention from American food media, thanks in part to chefs like Magnus and Rene Redzepi, Magnus has set out to document the foods of his home country and region. Following his first cookbook, which chronicles his food at Favikin, he published his second book, The Nordic Cookbook, an encyclopedic volume with more than 700 recipes from Nordic country, from Denmark to Finland, Sweden to the Faroe Islands, and featuring photos shot by Magnus himself. Which brings us to his latest, The Nordic Baking Bible, another massive volume with 450 recipes exploring the Nordic love of baked goods, both sweet and savory. So we asked Magnus to join us for our first ever Salt and Spine Baking Week to talk about the Nordic baking culture and his approach to cookbooks. Plus, later in this episode, we'll hear from Paula Forbes of Stainpage News about some of the other baking books she's excited about this fall. First, let's head to our studio at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, where Magnus Nilsson joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Magnus. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. So we're here to talk about your latest cookbook, the Nordic mm-hmm. Baking Book, which is your third cookbook. It fourth, is. Fourth it's, book it's with my fourth book, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. Third cookbook. Yeah. Third book with recipes. Um, and this is sort of a follow-up to your second cookbook. There actually is not not like a f- actually a follow-up. It's actually the duo of the two planned books from the beginning. Got it. Because uh, the whole research process for this was supposed to end up becoming two books one about you know more on the uh savory cooking side and then one with uh, essentially everything grain based everything baked so you knew from the beginning you always planned to do a book on baking as well i I did i did and it's such a cooking with grains uh not just sort of what we might most often think about when uh, we talk about baking but also other things like porridges and granolas and you know uh, everything with grains it's such a big part of nordic food culture both historically but also how we eat today so yeah i mean it would never have been possible to get all of that into the nordic cookbook and still make a balanced book because then either you would have pushed out many savory recipes or you wouldn't have been able to get enough depth uh, on the baking side the, the, it was meant to be like that from the beginning. It was just not possible to make them at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're both significant books. They're both pretty yeah. large. There's a lot of culture and a lot of history in both of them. And I want to come back to that. Mm. But I want to first note that in the beginning of this book, you say you're more of a cook than a baker. Definitely. Traditionally. I mean, it's my profession. So it's always right. uh, it's always been like that. I mean, it was interesting to, to write a book about baking because uh, with the cookbook, I mean, I have such 
so much more specialized knowledge because of my profession. Whilst with the baking book, I'm pretty much at the same level as any home baker, I think, okay. with like the baking specifics. And then because of uh, my profession as a cook, I might have uh, a bit more of a, an idea of what's going on on a technical level, but not in terms of uh, actually, you know, producing recipes. Yeah. And do you think that helped you then to have that perspective as someone who's not I super so. well-versed in baking? I think so. And a big okay. difference is that for the Nordic cookbook, I did all the recipe development myself. For this book, mm-hmm. I felt that that wasn't quite enough because I'm not intuitive enough as a baker. And uh, so I also had the help of Petrus Jakobsson, who has Petrus Bakery in Stockholm. He's a great baker. And he essentially produced all of the breads. He tested many of the recipes, produced all of the breads for the photography, um, and uh, put quite a lot of his insight into like the technical aspects on how to explain how to use the recipes. Right. And your wife is also the baker in the family, is that right? So she was involved in the process here yeah, as well? Yeah, I mean, Tove, Tove did a lot of recipe development, you know, because it's like... So these books are entirely documentary, right? That the recipes come from, you know, all kinds of sources. So so in these kinds of books, you have to be able to cross-reference because otherwise you don't, you you will never have enough space to get enough recipes in. If you have to write in every recipe that uses raspberry jam, how to make raspberry jam. So uh, she worked a lot with that, you know, making sure that all of the various basic recipes and uh, sort of finished recipes were compatible with each other. Uh, that they were consistent in size, you know, that every uh, biscuit recipe renders roughly the same amount of biscuits and that every recipe for short crust is roughly the same size so they can all fit into all of those recipes and so on. Another thing I really liked that you said in the towards the beginning of the book is that people sometimes have this idea that baking is more... You can play less with baking, right? Like mm. it's more scientific and you can't sort of adapt things. And you disagree with that. Is I that do. Right? I do. I think it's actually very limiting to see it that way. And I think it's yeah. like many other things that most of us don't necessarily know enough about to fully understand that instead of actually trying to fully understand, we just label it with something that makes it ne- unnecessary for us to do so. It's like, you know, when people see uh, an amazing painting, they can just, oh, you know, talk about the painter and say that he's such a creative person. That means that you never have to try to understand how the painting is done. It's just right. creative. But maybe the guy was just a super good craftsman. He was a very good painter. And it's the same thing with baking as well. It's, you know, it's the simplest entry into cooking in the sense that well-developed pastry and baking recipes, if you follow them to the dot, you're going to get something decent out of it. Yeah. But at the same time, it's also the most difficult part of cooking to get intuitively good at. And I think the reason for this is that we don't allow ourselves to try because we execute the recipe perfectly we know that it works. So next time, chances are that we're going to do it exactly the same way. Just read line by line and do yeah. that. Whilst almost no one does that with cooking, you know? First time you make an omelet, you read how it's done. Second time you make an omelet. Right. The third time you make your own omelet, you know? Right. And I think that's the, the like the, the great difference between savory and uh, baking. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a, a great perspective to have included in your book. And I, I think that's a common myth that mm. it's, it's good to sort of push yeah. back on. So for both of these books, you traveled all over. You, yeah. cr- you culled recipes and gathered recipes from across various countries across mm-hmm. the Nordic region. Now, you, you were born in Sweden? Yes. So, so this is your region. This is your home. But yeah. you, I imagine, learned a lot of things about your home country, about the broader region as you were traveling for both of these books. What was that experience like for you? I mean, it's been amazing to get to spend so much time during six years uh, learning about 
the food culture of my own region. Yeah. You know, a food culture that I thought I knew pretty much everything about. And then it turned out that I didn't know anywhere near as much as I thought about. And uh, the greatest sort of discovery with that is how much more diverse the Nordic baking culture especially is than, you know, what most people would think. And what makes the Nordic baking culture so special? You note that it's unlike any other sort of baking culture in the world. I really do think it's the most diverse and deeply rooted baking culture on the planet. Okay. And there are two, or there are many layers to that, obviously. But one one very important thing um, is that geographically, the region is very, very large. I mean, it's three and a half million square kilometers. Yeah. Um, And it has a lot of different climate zones, meaning that what people used to be able to grow historically varied a lot from part to part of the region. And what people used to, you know, have to do in the past, it surprisingly often informs the way we choose to do things today. Okay. I mean, you can look at Finland, for example. Uh, They have a great baking culture that's almost entirely based on rye. And I mean, there's no reason why they couldn't just get wheat shipped in or even grown with modern varieties today, but they still choose predominantly to work with rye and eat rye because that's what used to grow there, you know, exclusively almost for many hundreds of years. Yeah. And there's a recipe in your book for rye bread that is baked in a really interesting and unique way mm-hmm. that I loved. So can you tell us a little bit about that? It's it's baked underground. Yeah. So uh, on top of this sort of uh, geographical or climatic influence on what people produce in their homes, that's a constant, essentially. You also have a cultural layer on top of that. And surprisingly often, the cultural layer consists of what sort of whom occupied whom in the past. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And the, the Western part of the Nordic region, it's very Danish influenced. You know, let's take Greenland, Iceland, and the Faroe Islands. I mean, Greenland and the Faroe Islands are still Danish. Yeah. Iceland is not, but it was occupied for many, many, many years by the Danes. Mm-hmm. And they brought with them their bread culture. Uh, so all of these island nations, they will have some type of version of the Danish rye loaf. Uh, and on Iceland specifically, which is the one you're talking about, yes. is, uh, it's very fascinating because it's it's been adapted perfectly to the island. So Iceland doesn't have a lot of trees. So uh, in the old days, people used to um, use peat moss to heat their homes. And it's very laborious to harvest peat moss and drag it home and dry it and so on. So no one would really be inclined to use that for heating an oven just for baking. Okay. But what they do have in Iceland, though, is a lot of volcanic activity. So almost all of the older villages will have like a site outside of the village, you know, a couple of hundred meters away, uh, where they dug holes in the ground, one per each house. Uh, and in the evening, you would place your bucket with rye bread dough in the in the ground and put the lid on and then get back there in the morning and, you know, pick up a loaf of steamed bread. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So it is the da- like the Danish baking culture is adapted perfectly to a new situation in a new country. Yeah. And if you don't have volcanic activity in your backyard, <laughs> there are ways to still bake Icelandic rye bread. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I mean, you can steam it in the oven as well. You can right. steam it on the stove. Uh, it won't. And this is the thing, you know, none of the recipes that you ever make, regardless if they're from my books or from any other book, are going to be exactly the same as when they were produced, like developed and written. Right. Um, but that doesn't really matter because, I mean, they will be your iteration of the recipe. Now, another big part of this book is cookies mm-hmm. and shortbreads and other types of co- of cookies. And cookies have a really important role in, I believe, all of Nordic culture, yeah. right? Not just yeah. not just Sweden. And in particular, the the idea or the concept of seven kinds of cookies. Yeah. Can you That's tell us what that means? Swedish, That's a, a Swedish yeah. thing. Okay. Um, I mean, so you had 
like let's say 150 years ago, mm-hmm. sweet baking and pastries was not very common uh, in the Nordic region nor anywhere else really. Okay, uh, simply because most of the sugar, mo- like most of the, the sweetener you would have would be honey, and if it wasn't honey, it was imported cane sugar, which would have been very expensive. Something you found in you know very wealthy homes or royalty and so on in their kitchens. Right, um, and even there, it wouldn't be something that you baked with on an everyday basis. It would rather be used as a seasoning and savory food. So. Let's say 300 years ago in the royal kitchen, the food would have been, you know, remarkably sweet because that was a sign of wealth. It was a way of displaying your wealth. And with industrialization and uh, the start of production of beet sugar in the Nordic region, we also, you know, turned sugar more accessibly priced and more available in a bigger quantity. And we had this huge explosion of uh, various cookies and buns and sweet pastry recipes. and sugar was still quite expensive and it was still, you know, like with many things that are very exclusive, they're a status marker and mm. then they get a little bit cheaper and then they become a status marker for some more. And all of a sudden, sure. everyone can afford it and everyone has it and it's part of like everyday culture. Mm-hmm. And at some point here, uh, it was sort of decided that the optimum number for uh, uh, number of cookies, if you, you know, treated a friend for Fika was seven. Right. You know, anything less... You wouldn't want to do because the, then you came off as poor. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, anything more would have been a bit too braggy. Okay. Uh, even if you could afford that. So, so, and that's stuck, you know? So seven cookies. I mean, I don't think that a lot of people in our generation still feel strongly about this. Okay. Um, but like my grandmother, for example, that would be perfectly normal. I mean, she would, she would feel a bit ashamed if she didn't have seven cookies or seven different pastries to treat someone unexpectedly showing up for a fika. Yeah. Yeah, and so you grew up with that tradition. Now, there's also a cookbook that you noted that is titled um, Seven Kinds of Cookies. It literally translates (laughs) to Seven Kinds of Cookies, which you noted is a really important cookbook um, in Sweden and has sold more than three and a half million copies. Yeah, which is quite a lot in a a country with 10 million people in it. (laughs) (laughs) So almost every household, for sure, has a copy of seven types of cookies. And one other thing I, I learned about cookies is they're traditionally smaller, right? Like one to two bites compared to Americanized cookies, which are, are much bigger. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it would be, you know, uh, you, you pick them up and you, you will hold them between thumb and index finger. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's like one or two bites. Right. You know. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Magnus Nilsson, author of The Nordic Baking Book. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, listen up this Saturday, December 15th, to celebrate our first ever baking week, we're hosting a cookie swap and demo event. Join us for an afternoon at the Civic Kitchen, the beautiful cooking school for home cooks and the home to Salt and Spine in the Mission District. There will be champagne and warm apple cider and so many cookies to eat, swap, and learn how to make. Of course, in addition to eating and swapping, there will be lots of demos on how to bake delicious cookies, including by cookbook author Jessica Batalana, Civic Kitchen teachers, and even yours truly. And of course, you won't want to miss the cookie swap. To get in on the swap action, just bring a dozen or more home-baked cookies and then swap them for other baked goods from fellow home bakers. No time to bake? No worries. You can also purchase cookies to take home, $10 per dozen. Now, tickets to the event are $10 and proceeds will benefit La 
Cocina, which supports low-income food entrepreneurs in the Bay Area. I hope you'll join us this Saturday for the Salt and Spine Cookie Swap in San Francisco. Get your tickets today at civickitchensf.com. And now back to our conversation with Magnus Nilsson. Now, cakes play an important part in Nordic baking as well. Uh, and one thing I found really fascinating is the culture of uh, birthday cakes. Mm-hmm. In America, birthday cakes are often baked for someone else, mm-hmm. which is contrary to what is, I think, the Nordic <laughs> yeah. tradition, or is that Swedish as well? I think that it's fairly common in all the Nordic countries, okay. but it's definitely... I mean, Denmark is like that, and Norway is, I think, pretty much like that. Sweden as well, like, definitely. Okay. Um, I mean... Y- y- you don't expect your colleagues, for example, to make your birthday cake, but they expect you to bring a birthday cake <laughs> for when yourself. it's your birthday, yes. you know, to right. give them. Right. Um, and, and I don't know if this is sort of more of a practical thing that, you know, no one should have to be forgotten or in the workplace. Or I don't know, but, but it's a, it's a big difference actually. And it, that's, it doesn't extend out into the rest of Europe. Okay. At all. Then it's the other way around. How, as you were putting this book together, did you see ways that baking has evolved over time? I think you note that this has a lot of historical context and recipes, but is also sort of suited for the modern day baker as yeah. well. I mean, it, it is a sna- the book is a snapshot of what people actually bake today. And then okay. there are, I mean, the, the vast majority of the recipes are things that people bake all the time right now. And then there are uh, some that might have more of a historical of connotation, uh, mostly because they explain some cultural context very, very well. Uh, and I think that baking definitely evolves. And I think that, like, for example, the introduction of sugar that we talked about earlier yeah. is a great example of that. Same with spices that were, like, there's lots of sweet spices in Swedish cooking and Nordic cooking in general and baking. And, I mean, they were introduced during the time of the East Indian companies mm-hmm. when they went with sail ships trading with Southeast Asia and India and so on, following roughly the same sort of uh, uh, popularization pattern as the sugar, you know, initially starting out very exclusive, uh, becoming more and more accessible and cheaper and cheaper, and all of a sudden they're, like, everywhere. And, I mean, Sweden, for example, is the biggest consumer of cardamom per capita in the world. Oh, okay. Almost three times as much as India, for example. Wow, I did not know that. Just the buns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. Mm. So we were talking before we sat down here about the uh, social media activity that you've seen around this mm-hmm. book. And you noted that it's it's significantly higher than some of your other cookbooks and that people yeah. really have taken to, to baking from this book. They do. And th- I mean, there is just something with baking that makes people very engaged and enthusiastic because this book just came out i mean it hasn't been out for long it's like not even a month yeah um uh, so it's not that people have read like there are not more people who read this book than any of the other books uh and the difference though is that with the other books you know you okay on occasion someone contacts you with some feedback or someone tags me in a in a photo when they cooked something and so on but that's like you know once a month or once every week or yeah. something like that whilst with this book with the, with the baking book there can be any anything between 10 25 tags a day on instagram wow. for example with people making biscuits and breads and cakes and buns and whatever you know um so there's just something with the level of engagement uh that's really special when it comes to baking i think yeah that's really interesting. Now, you shot all the photos in this book as well. Yeah, I did. Um, and that, that's something that you've started to do more of, uh, with your books as well, right? Mm-hmm. Is that something that you sort of, uh, a passion that you came to it and you first started working on cookbooks? I mean, I've, I've always sort of enjoyed photography and I've always okay. done that since I was a child. Um, and it's just that with these two books, it's also become part of my profession and it's, mm-hmm. 
I mean, it's very convenient when you, uh, when you make documentary books that are based on traveling to also be able to photograph at the same time, because it's almost impossible to commission a photographer to do the same job. Right. Because they would have to spend so much time out in the field trying to recreate these situations that just happens, you know, that aren't always very easy to recreate. Right. How do you find the time to do all of that? I mean, you're writing these massive books, you're shooting photography, you're also running an incredible <laughs> restaurant, you know? I mean, I, it, it's just something that I've done side by side with Fabikim for such a long time. Yeah. And it wouldn't have been possible to do it quicker than these six years. Uh, yeah. But it's something that I've done. You know, I, I've traveled on occasion a few days here and there, you know, a week, a couple of times a year. Um, I've written a few hours every week and it's always like been there. And a lot of these research projects that we've undertaken around the, the Nordic cookbook and the Nordic baking book, they also feed into Fabiken. So they were already some like things that I used to do before okay. I even started these projects. Okay. Interesting. Now, I think I read that you have lots of cookbooks. Yeah, I do. Close to 3,000, <laughs> yeah, maybe? Yeah, something is that like right? that, yeah. Um, what role do cookbooks play for you in your it's life? a very small role these days. Really? I mean, yeah. I, I, I used to collect them. I still collect them, I guess, because I still have them. But um, I used to collect them and read them all and, you know, have them. But now they're just packed up in boxes, actually. I never okay. read them anymore. I don't know why. I just don't feel like it. Did you grow up with cookbooks? I did. I yeah. Did. And um, were there particular ones that inspired you throughout your career? Or they've just sort of been things that you've collected I've collected them and I, I mean, I, I've always been very curious to like get new information, not just in cooking. I mean, I have a lot of other books too, but I mean, with cook, cookery books, especially and certainly like in the beginning of one's career, uh, they, they, uh, they are a really important way of getting perspective. And the, it used to be even more important, you know, in the past than it is now, because I mean, when I went to cooking school, which is now, I mean, I, I started there almost 20 years ago now. Then, I mean, it was impossible to access all the information that we have now. I mean, sure. buying the books was the only, when there were no chef's table on Netflix. There was no uh, right. internet, no nothing, you know. Um, so all of that uh, was about getting information about what was out there. And I remember especially, I mean, the French Laundry Cookbook, for example, yeah. came out in 99. Um, when I was still in school, it was a huge influence uh, on the whole world, I think, um, the all of the cookbooks from Charlotte Trotter, mm -hmm. um, the Michel Bra cookbook, I yeah. mean, a lot of books like that, right? Um, that they were very important. And then I think later, when I'd gotten a bit further, home cooking books became more important because I mean, all of the cooking that we do in these very ambitious contemporary restaurants is somehow based on home cooking. So you, you would say your restaurant is based on home cooking? All restaurants are. I mean, that's yeah. where it comes from. Yeah. And it might not be recognizable all the time, but, you know, that's where it all comes from, from the beginning. Interesting. So this is a book for home cooks, too? This one is. And this is, yeah. not, I mean, this book has nothing to do with the restaurant. Right. It's entirely sure. a snapshot of what people actually bake in their homes in the Nordic region. Awesome. Well, we always end with a little game. So mm -hmm. I, th I thought we would play a baking game and I'll give you a few scenarios and maybe you can tell us um, which Swedish or which Nordic baked good might fit for this specific scenario. So the first one I'll give you is your parents or your parent-in-laws are coming for dinner tonight. You want to bake something for them. What might you bake? We usually do uh, uh, something called kladdekaka, which I think okay. in the book is called Swedish gooey chocolate cake, okay. which is entirely a Swedish thing. I mean, it begins to trickle out 
gotten out a little bit uh, into the rest of the Nordics. But I mean, you can follow it back in published history to uh, uh, the 70s or something like that. Before that, there was no mention of it. And I think that it's essentially someone had a dinner party. They were making like a French chocolate gâteau. They threw it in the oven. They realized that they forgot the uh, baking powder. They pulled it out of the oven, let's put it on the counter, and then they made perhaps a new one for their party. And then afterwards, they tasted the, you know, um, the first sort of uh, mistake cake. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was super delicious. And then that's been sort of um, those characteristics of that cake. They've been exaggerated over the years in okay. you know, new iterations of it. And now it's sort of a, essentially the batter is split when you pour it into the um, uh, tin. And, uh, uh, you bake it just, I mean, you bake it for like 10, 12, 15 minutes only. So it's sort of barely sets, you know. Okay. That's something that we often do. For- Del- it sounds delicious. It is delicious. We talked about the tradition of birthday cakes mm-hmm. and bringing your own birthday cake for your coworkers. Uh, so let's pretend it's your birthday. What mm-hmm. cake would you bring for your own birthday? Green marzipan layer cake. Princess okay. cake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Green marzipan time. layer. Yeah. Yeah. Delicious. What, what's the flavoring? It's a Spanish cake, raspberry jam, okay. um, and a mix of, um, pastry cream with whipped cream folded into it. And then you kind of make a dome with that over the cake and you cover the whole thing in a thin layer of green marzipan. Ah, uh, delicious. Um, okay. So we talked a lot about cookies as well. Mm-hmm. So let's say maybe your kids are having a birthday party and you want to have some cookies around. What sorts of cookies would you make that everybody loves? I mean, this time of year I would make ginger snaps. Yeah, for sure. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much, Magnus. It was great. To thank have you. you. Thanks for having me. And we're joined now by Paula Forbes, editor of Stain Page News, to discuss her favorite baking books this fall. Hi, Paula. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Great. So we're talking about baking books this week. So I wondered if maybe you had some books to share uh, in terms of fall baking books that we should keep an eye on. Yes, absolutely. So uh, there are some very exciting baking books coming out this fall. Um, In particular, I am excited. Rose Lovey Berenbaum is sort of the reigning queen of baking and pastry books. And up up till now, her books have been, her books are very good. They're very detailed. They're perhaps for an advanced home cook. I know a lot of professionals use them, you know, to troubleshoot recipes they're working on and get ideas and that kind of thing. So I'm really excited that this fall she's releasing Rose's Baking Basics, which brings that, you know, very precise level of detail to um, a more beginner audience, you know, and it's just classic recipes. We're talking about cookies, we're talking about, you know, brownies, we're talking about basic yellow layer cake, you know, that kind of stuff. But it's sort of the version of these recipes um, that I think is very exciting. Awesome. Next one I'm excited about. There are two, the other two actually that I'm excited about are both out of Midwestern bakeries, which I like to point out because I think often we pay a lot of attention to restaurants that are in New York and Los Angeles. So both of these are from Midwestern bakeries. The first is Lisa Ludwinski's Sister Pie in Detroit. Yeah. Uh, She's just got this like fantastic outlook on pies all of her pies are just slightly different and unexpected like she does a cheddar rye uh hand pie dough she's famous for her hand pies in general and and the the pie flavors are just phenomenal too i'm trying to find a really good one sweet corn nectarine streusel pie wow apple sage gouda so these are like not you know your standard pies this would be a good one if you're really looking to impress someone that sounds delicious it's fantastic and then the third one is ellen king's heritage baking she's in 
Evanston, Illinois, which is um, just outside of Chicago. And uh, I, I like this book for a number of reasons. I think it's um, like a realist guide to baking bread, which I think a lot more people are getting into these days. She's got a lot of variations um, using different whole grains, different flavors. She does breads with cheese in them, with olives in them. Um, it's just a really thorough, approachable guide to baking bread. And the reason, other reason I like this is because in recent years, we've had all, a, a bunch, several guides to baking bread that are all these, you know, a man's serious journey into the realm of bread. And I, I love to see that this is a book by a woman taking a similar journey. So those are my three picks for fall baking books. Yes. Awesome. All, all great books, um, all great women. And I think totally awesome, as you said, to see a, a big bread book, a big bread baking book um, from a woman in the Midwest. That's amazing. Thanks so much, Paula. Thanks, Ryan. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content on our website, saltandspine.com. There, you'll find two recipes from the Nordic Baking Book, the cardamom buns and the Icelandic rye bread. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Our program today was produced by Allison Sullivan and myself. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. A special thanks today to Paula Forbes, editor of Stainpage News. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with one more story behind baking books you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, happy listener. I'm Yardley. And I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. And we are the hosts of the true crime podcast, Small Town Dicks. On our podcast, detectives from small towns all around the world give us their firsthand accounts of the memorable crimes they investigated in their small town. The new season of Small Town Dicks is out now. But if you're new to the podcast and you want to start at the beginning, we have over 125 episodes for you to binge. So please join us for an original take on true crime. Small Town Dicks, available wherever you like to listen. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>